Barbecue's our passion, and that's just what you'll get where the Kim Burns is a barbecuer. Tales from the pits. Howdy, welcome to a very special episode of Tales from the Pits. This is Brian. And Andrew. And we're here with a super special guest, Andrew. Yes, why don't we have him introduce himself? We are here with... Hey, this is uh, Robert Moss. Robert Moss, who has done a lot in the barbecue world, in the food writing world, and in the uh, historical aspect of the food world, which is something that Brian and I have always nerded out about. And we, you know, we're really excited. We wanted to talk to you about a lot of the history of barbecue and, and your history in barbecue for a long time. But let's, let's get into a little bit about your background and, and let everyone that, I don't know how you could be listening to the show and not know Robert, but <laughs> let everyone know a little bit about you. Okay. Well, sure. So, um, yeah, so, uh, again, Robert Moss, I'm a, a barbecue writer and, uh, I call myself a culinary historian cause I really got into food writing from the historical angle. Um, People listening to the show may know me most from my either uh, book, Barbecue, the History of an American Institution, which came out in uh, 2010 and just came out in 2020 with a, a revised edition. And I'm also the contributing barbecue editor for Southern, Li- Southern Living Magazine, and I write a barbecue newsletter called The Q Sheet and do a lot of other things. I do a lot of food writing that's not barbecue related, uh, particularly here in the Carolinas. I'm based here in, here, here in Charleston, which we're, we're, I guess you guys can say we are today, normally uh not in Texas this time yeah, around. Not in you, Texas. You came to me, which is nice. Um, and and uh, the Holy Smoke uh, Low Country Barbecue Festival. That's right. I was uh, lucky to, to team up with some great guys here, uh, Aaron and Taylor from uh, Home Team Barbecue and Anthony from Swing and Swine, uh, and all the basically all the, the Charleston barbecue guys to stage a really uh, the first first uh, annual festival. We're definitely going to do it again next year uh, called uh, uh, Holy Smokes, a Low Country Barbecue Festival. And we were actually very proud. Just a couple weeks ago, we gave a check for $100,000 to hogs for the cause which is a uh, charity that uh, barbecue or or barbecue related charity that raises uh, money for families who's who have uh, children with pediatric or brain cancer so uh it was a great event came off really well we uh, had a great turnout and uh, lots of pitmasters from all over the country including quite a number of great pitmasters from texas came came out here and uh we'll, we'll do it again next year yeah, I mean, talk, talk about an all-star lineup, and that was that was an amazing, you know, amazing event, amazing roster of people coming together for such a great cause. Yeah, and I, I was lucky because the organizers, I got to hang out with everybody the day before as they were cooking and just walk around, and so all these, I mean, a lot of, most of them I'd met before, been to their restaurants, but to have all that, that much barbecue talent all in just one place was fantastic. I think we had more Lang uh, whole hog cookers than I've ever seen in my life, all just in one, <laughs> one, one place. And then the Texas village, we had all these offset smokers lined up. It was really quite a, uh, you know, just, well, the smell of it alone was, was fantastic. And then just to get to hang out with the guys and talk. The great camaraderie around, yep. it, because these, these guys, they, they have their business. They don't get to travel that much. I mean, festivals are, are back and there's more and more of those, but um, you get people that have never been able to come out and hang out together and have that time. Yeah, and we definitely try to do something a little bit different. Like a lot of the barbecue festivals, everybody sort of has their own booth, their own table, and you sort of go around and you get it from each one. So we actually um, had the guys uh, pair up into three or team up into three different villages. So you had six to eight pitmasters cooking together, which I think everybody liked a lot for exactly that reason. It wasn't they just came out and did their normal thing and, and then just had to serve a thousand plates real fast. They got to really hang out, cook talk you know share stories and all that kind of stuff and there are lots of uh you know a barbecue is mostly uh sitting around anyway while you watch <laughs> it so there's a lot of great conversation i think that's really you know for, for those guys that's a that's a great chance to to just hang out and relax and and just you know you know share stories but also share techniques and tips and learn things from each other 
you, you know, you talked about kind of the, the camaraderie, the communal. In, in your history, you know, what was barbecue to you as you grew up out here and, and what were your first experiences? Yeah, that's interesting. That? So I, I grew up, um, I grew up in the low period of barbecue. In fact, in my history, um, I, I call the seventies and eighties, like the, I think it's the decline and then rebirth of barbecue. Yeah. Um, I actually define, I think in the book, the lowest point in American barbecue was 1982, which is when McDonald's brought out the McRib. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the book, you'll find out that McDonald's actually was a barbecue joint, uh, in, in, in the original days, uh, before they, they switched over to, to hamburgers. Um, so when I was growing up, um, I think I went to a few barbecues, like through my family's church and stuff like that. You know, there, there were still people were doing sort of the back, not backyard, but like a big event where you'd have like, you know, everyone from the church come over to a farm and, and do that. So I went to a couple of those and there were a few barbecue joints around, but at that point, everyone was switching over to gas. Um, there wasn't anything of, of the, you know, of the kind of barbecue we have today. Um, and, you know, gradually they're just closing their doors. So I really grew up um, not eating barbecue all that much until I got to college. And, you know, I ate you know, Burger King and McDonald's and fast food like, a, like all teenagers. And when I got into college, suddenly, I, for some reason, I got interested in, you know, hitting the off the beaten path. Not just barbecue, but like little burger joints and things like that. So I started driving all around the, I, was, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. So I drive around the upstate of South Carolina and the Piedmont, North Carolina seeking out barbecue joints and just fell in love with it. There were all these little mom and pop family run joints. Or no, at that time, almost no one made a big deal out of it. You know, there was no internet, no social know. media. Yeah, there was yeah, no, yeah. Was, yeah, just finding them was hard. You'd have to just sort of drive around. I'd just drive down the road and see a place and pull into it. Um, but I just fell in love with it at that point. And um, that's sort of how I, how I got into it. So growing up, it wasn't like a barbecue was just a thing. It was like, you know, it might be a seafood restaurant there. It might be a, a burger joint. Uh, and it was really, you know, I, I lived through the, the the era of, you know, barbecue sort of getting rediscovered, you know, being brought back to the revival of American barbecue. And so I had a ringside uh, seat for that. But yeah, definitely. I ate a lot of the classic Piedmont joints by the time when most people didn't really make a big deal out of it. And uh, they're the ones that are celebrated today. But uh, yeah, that, that's what, how I got into it. Was there one or maybe even a couple that really like, cause we both, we both got bit by the, the barbecue bug from, yep. you know, specific visits that we both remember. Were, were there any particular places or, or experiences you had that really kind of pushed you down the path that, that became, you know, your career? Yeah, there are, there are two and they're both gone now. So, um, this was at the time when, again, they were, they were closing. One was a little pigs and little pigs is a really interesting story. Um, it was the first, bar- well, one of the first barbecue chains. It was based in Memphis and in, in launched in the 1960s. And it was a franchise thing. So that they would, uh, you know, sign up for a couple thousand dollars and they'd set you up with it and teach you how to build a pit and all this kind of stuff. And the chain only lasted for a couple of years, like maybe four or five years uh, before it went defunct. But a lot of the franchisees stayed in business. And most of them, if you see a, a, a barbecue joint around the Carolinas, um, called Little Pigs. The odds are pretty good that it was once part of that Memphis-based chain. And so there was a Little Pigs uh, on Pleasantburg uh, Drive in, in Greenville that uh, I used to go to when I was, that was actually one of probably the first ones I, uh, I went to because it was, it was near where I lived. And they actually, it was in the storefront in a strip mall, but they had a big brick pit and they cooked over real wood and you walk into the the restaurant and just that smell when you first walked in. So that the bugs were bit me then. I think when you walk in, you smell that hickory smoke coming from a real pit and there it is right there behind the counter. It's just a little modest place. They'll chop a sandwich up and put it on, put it on a bun for you long gone now. So they, they closed down. 
and there was another one. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it was in Rutherford, Rutherfordton, which is a very hard town to say uh, in in North Carolina. It's just up in the just over the South Carolina border in, in Piedmont, North Carolina. And it was a classic Piedmont kind of kind of place, and that was one where I was just driving down the road and saw it and pulled over, and it was fantastic. I just remember same thing walking in. So it's even before you even eat it. It's really that smell when you walk into a, a barbecue joint, and still to that day, when if I I can get out of a car. And if I, you smell it just right, you know this is going to be a good a meal even before you get in there because that it's that combination of the smoke and also the I think the grease and the you know, the pork pork fat. Um, and, and there's you nothing can't, like yeah, it. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can't get that from using one of those uh, gas assist cookers or you, you know someone's cooking on wood and it's going to be a good experience. Yeah, and in in Texas, it's that way rolling into Lockhart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole city just kind of has that smell as you roll in, and and it's just such it's such a sensory overload. Um, yeah, I love Lockhart just because you can park and like walk to three different barbecue yeah. joints. <laughs> you know, all of well, we can spend hours at Smitty's. We always talk about uh, about Smitty's, and we were lucky a, a couple times back. We got to talk to Nina, um, Nina Schmidt, and just experience. And, and you know, we're talking about generational things, and um, you know, they've got counters where and my dad went there. Yeah, and so he had told me about the knives on the chain, and and I hadn't seen them. Um, this was a few times back when we went there. And so we actually, you know, we, we talked to her and she walked me over to the counters and I saw the counters and I touched the chain. And, and then you think, you know, well, my dad probably sat right here and, and ate. And that, that connection to, um, you know, between communities, between that sensory overload and, and between generational connection. That's, I mean, barbecue is just such a special thing. Yeah, for sure. And Smitty was actually one of the first Texas places I went. I think I, maybe, maybe the second or third, uh, you know, place I went to and just, as soon as I step in that pit room, you see that fire, and then you're right there by the counter. If you're not careful, you can step literally, you can step into, literally it. into the fire. It's like <laughs> I guess the you know I don't think you could build this today. You know this is a this is a a historic institution for sure. Yeah, it's still probably our favorite building to walk into in Texas. Yeah. I mean, even even to this day. I mean, yes, no, they haven't modernized, and I don't ever want them to modernize. Yeah, they, you, they, you really want it. To, you don't want the change. Same right, way, like the, like um, Louis Muller and 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 Taylor. Yeah, you don't want them to take any of those business cards off the wall that are just right. sort of you know. That, black yeah, with you, you brown want, with smoke. You, you know? want to see just the tiny bit of the skylight that still shines that's through. Right, yeah. That's not soot covered from all the <laughs> and smoke. Yeah, and please don't air condition it. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> yes, that, yes. that big that big room is not air conditioned. Yeah, and and what they did is they they've got an extension. They did add air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, that, but the but room. they left the main hall unair conditioned. Yep. So it's it, you know they're, again they're trying to branch between you know the historic but then the convenience for the new customers. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, that, that's because. It's not everybody isn't just traveling there as a tourist. You know, the people in Lockhart you know, want to have a nice lunch too. So yeah, I do like the the compromise. But just going through those like the, the screen doors and walking into yes. that big that big room is that was an experience. one of the more disappointing things was was Kreitz added sauce and forks. Yes, and. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, but it, it's because of really, because I think because of all the social media and people that complain, everybody can see that complaint and they're just tired of it. We know when Kreitz opened up in college station, we had talked to them and they had gotten physical threats um, for not having forks. <laughs> and, and the most interesting thing to us is, is A&M is there. It's built on tradition and history, but they couldn't respect the tradition of this barbecue joint yeah. that was opened up. And since then, unfortunately, they, they closed in that location as well. And but, I think, yeah, I think that ties into, it's hard to respect the tradition if you don't know what the tradition is. And I think with, with barbecue these days, because it's become so popular and people learn about barbecue through social media, through TV, through the internet, they they come to it with a, a, a set of expectations that, um 
and the expectations are the same no matter where you are in the country um, or no matter which barbecue joint you're walking into. So I think that's that's a big a, a big struggle for for restaurateurs who I, I talk to. You know, everybody now they walk into a, a restaurant in the Carolinas. If you don't have brisket, you're going to get an earful uh, from from customers because that's in their mind. That's it can't be a barbecue joint without brisket, even though that's really becoming a thing. Yeah, right it's, now. it's wow. a huge thing. Yeah, wow. talk to any of the uh, the uh, Carolina barbecue restaurateurs, and they all have a cho- had a choice to make a couple of years ago of do I want to start putting brisket on the menu or not? Some refused and said no, I don't know how to do it. I think uh, good for them. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and uh, others just got tired of getting yelled at. You know, um, but by, it's by, so by expensive customers. too. It's to, very expensive. To, to cook, yeah. You know, a lot of times it's almost a lost leader. But you know, if you don't have it. it, it you're going, you know, you're going to have complaints constantly throughout the day and on Yelp and on social media, you know. Um, so a lot of people just being practical business people say, okay, well, we'll throw some brisket in the pit and, we'll, and then they have to learn how to you know, cook it and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, cause it's not quite the same as doing a, a pork shoulder, but. And that's interesting. I mean, is that, do you think that's because of, of Lewis coming or is it just the no, general was, popularity of I Texas think, barbecue? I think Texas barbecue in general, um, you know, it was interesting when I first started writing about barbecue and certainly, um, you know, when I wrote the book back in 2010, barbecue is a very different, you know, business at that point. And people's, um, people tended to know about the barbecue they grew up eating and, uh, be very passionate and loyal about whatever place their family went to, to get barbecue. And that was what real barbecue is, you know, and, and if you took them to, if you took a Carolinian to Memphis, you're like, that's not real barbecue. Real barbecue is, you know, chopped pork with, uh, you know, hash and rice on the side and mustard sauce. That's real barbecue. Um, and, but something changed as barbecue became really popular, which just started in the, you know, in the early 2000s and just kept on growing uh, straight through till, the, till today. It's just gotten bigger and bigger. A lot of people came to barbecue and learned about it, not from eating at the local joint that they grew up with, but they learned about it from seeing it on TV. They learned about it from seeing it on, on, especially, you know, the Food Network and, you know, all that, all that, um, from social media, which really took off, you know, Aaron Franklin blew up so big and that really, I think a lot of people sort of got introduced to barbecue through that. And now their expectation of what real barbecue is is often those big trays with over. You think, you've seen that shot a thousand mm-hmm. times—the overhead mm-hmm. picture of the big tray with all the meats and everything else—and that's what people expect. And it's really changed uh, barbecue joints in the Carolinas now. Fifteen years ago, you go, you, you wouldn't get a tray at a, a Carolina joint. You get a styrofoam plate, you know. Uh, now there are lots of silver trays. There's lots of butcher paper on it. Even if they're serving pork and mustard sauce, you'll often will get an entree because that's what people expect. That's what it become what, what barbecue is. Wow. I mean, that's from, from a purist standpoint, that's kind of disappointing and heartbreaking to hear. Like you don't want these places to have to like, I don't want barbecue to be cookie cutter. That that's kind of what's been the romance of real barbecue is, is that you can go to this place and you want to get there at one o'clock because that's when the meats rested a little bit. And, Oh, this guy's cooking on this day. So that's the day you want to go to that place. And that the streamlined processes of professionally made pits has kind of changed a lot of that too. And a lot now you don't have to go anywhere to, to learn this craft anymore. You're not learning it from your parents or you're not learning it from working at a place for 20 years. You're learning it on YouTube or, you know, the, I can't tell you how many people we've interviewed over the last several years where the first thing out of their mouth when we say, oh, how did you learn? The Franklin videos. <laughs> <laughs> and those videos were great. And we all learned something from those videos. But it does take some of the character and the individuality out of barbecue. And, and it it's also explains why, you know, somebody who's taking up, you know, buys a nice offset 
cooker for the backyard and starts to take up barbecue, well, they're going to cook brisket, even if you live in Virginia or the Carolinas, because that's where you, you got it from the videos, you got it from the book. And and actually, Aaron Franklin's book is fantastic. It the, it gives you step-by-step blueprints. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Exactly how to do it. <laughs> yeah, so. he's, he's used the word blueprint, and yeah. I, I've just totally adopted that. There's a, there's a blueprint to that style, and if you follow it, you, you get a great product. Um, but but it's interesting because that takes some of the regionality out of barbecue, yep. which is what, what, to us, that's kind of what really we love about Carolinas is that it is very regional. Yeah, and that's what I write about in the in the history um, is really how the, all the regional variations came to be. Because in the 19th century, that wasn't the case. If you went to a barbecue in Virginia in, let's say, 1870 or a barbecue in Texas, it was going to be almost the exact same thing. Um, it was going to be an outdoor cooking you know, tradition, big open pits dug in the ground, massive, hundreds if not thousands of attendees, you know, everything on the pit it wasn't like you got pork in the carolinas and beef only in texas they farmers would it was, these are usually free community barbecues so farmers and you know would you know, donate livestock whatever they had on hand and, and were willing to to spare for the call so it might be a pig a goat a sheep a cow you know you, you'd have a little bit of everything if you read these descriptions of 19th century barbecue it's just like a zoo of animals <laughs> that get they get put on the pit uh and in terms of like sauces and that kind of stuff it was very similar in Virginia all the way to Texas. You find descriptions that they basically had a basting sauce that they based the, the animals. And they were whole animals. So you would have a whole pig or a, a half of a you know, cow split in half, um, whole, whole goats and whole, whole turkeys and all that. And they would baste it with a, a real simple sauce. There was some sort of fat, like either butter or lard, melted with vinegar and a lot of uh, red pepper and black pepper. So it was a peppery liquid sort of like north carolina sauce but um today uses a basing and that was basically what you had all throughout and side dishes were these were all outdoors there's no refrigeration so you know you had bread and pickles and things that they weren't going to go bad you did not have potato salad in the barbecue <laughs> in, in 1870. um all that changed in the uh in the early 20th century as uh first barbecue stands and the barbecue restaurants came about and you know people were set up businesses regular businesses at, at first they were just sort of bringing like like Sam Jones's family, the uh, of, of uh, Skylight Inn, they get there got started from his great 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 something grandfather, uh, who would cook some pigs and bring them into town to sell on the weekends, and that's how a lot of, of barbecue operations started. But then as they made permanent restaurants, and you start set up daily operations, you have to sort of standardize you, you know what you're going to cook, and you then refrigerators came along and deep fryers, and so then you have to sort of pick your side. But everybody sort of standardized on their, on their dishes. And you were talking about how people learn. This is sort of how I got, got on the this, this stance to begin with. Um, really, there was a system of mentorship and apprenticeship, which is how people learned how to cook barbecue. And, and, and so you can just find example after example of, you know, somebody in high school goes to work for the local barbecue restaurant, learns the techniques from the the, the owner there and then goes and opens their own barbecue restaurant and they build a similar pit and they cook the food, you know, a similar way and they serve similar side dishes. And you can really track in uh, Houston, in uh, the Piedmont, North Carolina, in Kansas City, these barbecue mentors who were sort of the pioneers. And you can almost do a family tree of, you know, these restaurants. Scott we'll probably and talked about that there. four times just this trip. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you can really tell. I mean, Warner Stamey in the Piedmont, North Carolina, who uh, started off in, in Lexington working for a barbecue joint there. But then he went down to Shelby uh, and both the, the Bridges Barbecue, there's a Red Bridges Barbecue Lodge and then 
Bridges Bar, Alton Bridges, Alston Bridges, uh, unrelated Bridges families, but they both learned how to cook from Warner Stamey. Then Stamey went back to Lexington. All these people worked at his, cooked at his restaurant and then went and opened their own. And then he ended up in Greensboro, where Stamey still is today, now run by the fourth generation. Um, but you can do, and actually John Shelton Reed and, and Dale Reed did a wonderful family tree of Piedmont, North Carolina barbecue in their book. It's called uh, The Big Book of North Carolina Barbecue. And it basically tracks like all these generations of, of restaurants. And they all go back to Warner Staby and uh, Jeff Swice Good and uh, you know a couple of these guys who started off cooking basically on the weekends in, in Lexington, North Carolina. So, you know, you, you mentioned refrigeration and, and how that changed. I mean, in Texas, especially, and, and takes us back to brisket, yep. you know, the boxed beef yes. versus the whole animal. But but again, it's what we really like are the restaurants that are still honoring the, the whole animal here. And especially kind of nose to tail cooking where they're using all of the components of, of the dish. Um, so you like hash as, as yeah. one of our perfect examples. Yeah, hash is just such a, a perfect example of that. And, you know, the thing that... I, I just I always forget about refrigeration and ice, even as a culinary historian. And so many things that happened in the 19th century all come down to not having ice or not having um, refrigeration. But in the if you're going to do a barbecue in South Carolina in the 1870s or 1840s, there is no refrigeration. You, you can't go to the store and buy pork shoulders. You, know, you, you have pigs, and so uh, there's no way to refrigerate them, and it's, it's 95 degrees. So what do you do? You take whatever animals you're going to cook, you take them to where the barbecue is going to be, which is almost always in a shady grove of trees because you need the shade because there's no, no air conditioning, and you actually kill and butcher and you know, slaughter the animals right there on site. And then basically hash is a, a version of a, a hog killing stew that they would also make in the in November when they kill hogs because you you know you take the, the visceral the you eviscerate the hog take all the, the the guts out of it but then what are you left with well you take the head off and then you have the the liver and the lights as they called it which is lungs you have all that stuff left over the rest of it goes in the pit so what do you do you pick the head and, and all the organs into a big old pot the same pot you would render lard in during hog killing time put it over a fire and you cook it way down so that was a way of literally you had the entire hog there in the woods and this is something to do with it it it's, turns out to be absolutely fantastically delicious um and i'm, I'm very glad it, that hash hash seems to be holding in there uh not only um all, all the new guys who are starting up restaurants in in the carolinas uh, at least in south carolina tend to do hash like all the new ones here which is great and i'm starting to see it float around in new places uh that, that like even texas there's a couple of folks down there making hash in texas which is it's good because you think a stew like that would disappear but it, it hadn't yeah the roy it, lewis goldies yep. yeah 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 it, it's yeah. definitely it, it's grown and and it's one of the things that you know we were talking on a previous episode it's it's so easy to to not do the homework anymore it, it's easy to to see it on a menu or see it on Instagram and say like, what is that? And you can usually Google and figure out what it is and, and probably make a perfectly acceptable recipe for it. But to us, there's still nothing that replicates going to these places and tasting it and seeing how these places have done it. And that's, you know, kind of what we try to impress upon people in Texas because we're seeing more and more whole hog yep. coming up in Texas. But so many of these people have never done the trips, never gone to these places and seen just the differences in regional sauce, the differences in chopped versus pulled. I mean, and, and these are these are huge things that I know it's very popular to to go the Jones family method. That's that's kind of the the really in thing to do right now. Um, but what do you see? Where do you see whole hog going now? I mean, because you're kind of at the you're at the epicenter of a lot of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, I was writing about. I really thought whole hog was going to disappear. 
um, at, at one point. And I, at some point, I actually mapped out all the hog, whole hog joints we, in the we, country that I knew we, of. We've used Thank that you for list. doing that. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> been the basis up, of our trips. I think I came yeah. with like 16 or 18. It wasn't that many, yeah. you know, and, and uh, added a couple to it. But I'm glad to say that there's I can add a lot more to the map now. And um, you got a lot more. You know, Rodney Scott alone has now uh, got four. Uh, yeah. about to have five uh, restaurants where he's doing whole hog. Pat Martin is taking a whole hog all over the all over the place. Um, I think he's got about 10 restaurants now. So just alone, those guys are expanding. And then you have people like Elliot Moss who went up to Asheville and brought whole hog with them. You got, uh, I guess, Evan Leroy is doing it down in, in, in Austin. You got, uh, I think Leo's doing it now at Truth, uh, yeah. at least what's one day a week? On, on weekends, yeah, yeah. yeah. Most, most weekends. So, um, so it's spreading around. Um, so, it, so whole hog is coming back. But I think the, yeah, I don't, I don't, I hope we don't lose the fact that there is not a single way of cooking a whole hog. And if you go to, you know, the PD of South Carolina and you eat Rodney, uh, the Scott family's whole hog, which I know you guys just did not, not too long ago, it's very different than going to Heights in West Columbia or going to Skylight Inn. Um, the chopping of the of the skin into the, in the just the way the, the Jones family does their, their whole hog, it's very different than most places right. that they, they'll pull it out. They actually sauce it while it's on the board. They actually cook it a little different, flip it differently. They chop the skin into it, which a lot of people, because Sam has sort of become an ambassador for a whole hog, a lot of people who are doing a whole hog will do it that way, which is great. It's, it's, it's delicious, but it's only one of the many varieties. Exactly. And if you see how like Rodney Scott does his whole hog, or, and his, uh, his dad did it before him, very different than the, the Jones family. They actually will cook it skin side up all night, you know, all night long until it's done. At the very end, they'll flip it over and then they actually mop it there in, you know, on the pit. Not they don't chop it. They they mop it and finish the hog. Put put a lot of heat under it so that you actually get the the meats actually the sauces were bubbling around the the sides of it and it almost is like sauteing the the pork and inside this the big the big uh, shell of, of the skin and then just they pull it with with tongs. So it's very different and it's almost like spaghetti. You know, we, you pull you pull that off. So it's a very different um, finished product than you'll get just uh, you know a couple hours up the road. Um, so there's lots of different ways to do it. And then you've got people like Sweatman's who are uh, basing with mustard sauce, which you don't see that that right. often. You know, right. um, and, and that that creates a totally different uh, style. And you got folks like uh, Ramey's in, in Western Tennessee, which is its, its own style that's, that's very different. And uh, I guess it's called B. Scott's. It's always like Scott just, slash Parker's yes, in yes. Lexington, Tennessee. <laughs> right. um, but uh, it was originally B. Scott's, and now uh, Zach Parker is carrying it on. So it's Scott slash Parker's. And, um, and just the serving style there where you get to, you get to pick which part of the pig you get to you get to pull yeah. from so it's it, it definitely that that variation which we love because we it there's a lot of ways to serve it and what's interesting about scott's is like most people just go and you just get a sandwich it's just a bun with the you know uh i, I think they are i think they always put slaw on it unless yeah. you tell them not to uh which is just the default in, in west tennessee and it's great it's very simple i think it's still like 350 it's, you know, it's, it's so ridiculously cheap, cheap. Yeah. yeah you walk in with like ten dollars and walk out with you know change in your pocket <laughs> and having had two sandwiches and chips and a drink um which is sort of the the, the, the way it, you know it was for a long time it was just a way of cooking lunch you know for 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 people in tennessee i mean you're really dialed in obviously to to the old school places and i know it's one thing that we talk about a lot in texas is the cost of the cost of operating mm-hmm. a barbecue restaurant has has just gone up so much and i mean we struggle with in texas but we've we've struggled with going from 20 to 25 to 30 a lot of these places are still struggling to get into double digits and poundage i mean 
how long is it sustainable at the prices that they're able to charge? It's it's not for much longer. Um, it, you just have you have this real divergence in the in the market. You've you've sort of get to the point where you're I don't want to call it upscale, maybe the wrong word, but you've got sort of the craft barbecue places that you know is probably a better better term for it. And then you have the often called the modern pops, but sort of the old school places. And increasingly that there's a there's a gap there. Um, and it's a different customer base. And if you get outside, like here in Charleston, it's a little bit different. You know, this is a restaurant market. If you get out into, you know, small towns in, in South Carolina, um, you know, your, your customer base isn't going to go spend $20 for, for lunch. Um, their expectation is to go in and be able to spend about 10 bucks. You're competing not with the barbecue joint down the road. You're competing with Hardee's and the fast food chains and KFC. And so, you know, maybe someone will pay an extra buck or two. Uh, to get barbecue instead of a burger, but they're not going to pay, you know, 3x, and it's just a totally different way of, of cooking. And the craft places, you know, they're they're wanting to use the top quality meats. They they're, they're going to really spend a lot of time on it. A lot of, you know, really chef up the sides and have all this this stuff. Whereas a uh, the mom and pops is more just about it's, it's a simpler uh, way of eating. So you definitely have that that gap. And what happens is the if you're a mom and pop, your food prices go up. Things you know. You really can't raise your prices that much more because again you're right. competing with national fast food chains and your your customers will leave um there have been a lot of those places that have been closing down lately um another factor is that the land they're sitting on if they're in a, a city is getting more and more and more valuable so you'll increasingly see they'll they're not making money or they're they're breaking even the land's going up taxes are going up and they finally say okay well, we're going to shut the doors we want to sell the land and you know let someone build apartments on it or office building um, which just you know makes sense, and they're ready to get out of business because you're not going to get rich running those kind of those kind of places, especially when what they're competing with uh, in like a city like Charlotte is this way. You have a lot of newer places that have opened up that are big, large format. They're craft barbecue places, but they all have full bars. They have you know 20 taps of beer. They have bands in there on the weekends. They have t- other revenue streams. Yeah, they have flat screen TV. Well, people coming to hang out there. Right. Old school North Carolina places, by and large, did not sell beer, so they even have that revenue stream. They're making their money off of pork sandwiches and maybe off of you know Coke and iced tea, um, and they just couldn't compete with uh, with both from the they don't have the revenue stream, but then the, the younger customer base they don't want to just go have a sandwich and an iced tea. They want to go hang out, have a cocktail. They, you know, they want the overhead shot of that right. trade. Yeah, do the <laughs> overhead shot because you can't really you know got to Instagram that that thing, um, and and that that increasingly is you know the 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 smaller places are, are are fading away, and what you're seeing is these are really good barbecue joints that are coming along. They're 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 very serious about what they do, but they have a little bit more money behind them, a little more investment, a lot bigger, and it's just a different a different style that's happening. Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, the, the perfect example of that was McCabe's. Yes. Um, I mean, we you know we still respect it, and we enjoyed the visit, but it was fourteen fifty, including tax for all you can eat plus a drink. Yeah. I mean, out the door, and we're just you know that's. That's a half a pound of brisket. Yeah, at, at some places, <laughs> that's you know. just getting started at a, at, at a you know Texas craft place. And McCabe's is one of those. I mean, it's in Manning, South Carolina, so it's a small town in, in South Carolina. Um, yeah, people will travel there to eat, but the, but most you know seventy eighty percent of the people there are from Manning, and they're just having lunch. You know, and you really can't charge more than fifteen dollars. And that's actually been. Um, you're seeing less and less of the all-you-can-eat barbecue buffets in the Carolinas, which sort of came along in the seventies and eighties. Um, just because the economics don't work anymore, you, you you can't 
let people eat all they want for $14 uh, when you're paying that much for, for the pork that goes in the pit. If it was our only meal, we would have eaten uh, well over. Yeah, McCabe's <laughs> is fantastic, too. It's really good. And uh, and all the sides, unlike a lot of barbecue buffets in, in the Carolinas, you know, the green beans, just they open the can and dump it in the steam table. But that, my, my impression, of at least every time I've been to McCabe's, is all the, the sides are great. You know, the, everything on the plate's wonderful. Yeah. And you, you hurt when you leave because you eat so much. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we talk about when we tell these, you know, when we tell people, please go around to these places and try them because you're not going to find that on Instagram. You're not going to, you know, like some of those things, those little touches at these places yeah. that you're just, you're not going to see unless you go out and you eat the food and you try it and you experience it. Cause, cause yeah, that's, that's the wonderful thing about Sam Jones being this ambassador and going all over America is people have gotten introduced to just that one style, but it's, it's kind of what you said with brisket where you feel like you have to have brisket on the menu everywhere now which is terrible um but people feel like if i'm going to cook a whole hog this is how i have to do it I gotta flip it over because the skin at the yep. end chop it up i mean and there there are many other delicious ways to do it sam jones and the jones family method is just one of them but let's uh let's switch gears to one of brian's favorite topics now i was hoping see <laughs> we can read each other's minds so let's let's take some time to talk about pork steak Okay. Um, so we, we got turned on to pork steak a f- few years ago. It's been a while. Been a while. Um, it, it was it was probably some of your content, and I know Daniel Vaughn, did a, he did a map of pork steak, and we followed most of that map. And, and I mean, everybody is familiar with Tootsie. Well, probably most everybody now with Netflix. It snows mm-hmm. in Tootsie. But, but we, did, we did the, you know, kind of what we call the pork steak trail, and we experienced all these other places. And we just fell in love with the kind of meat. It's cheap. It's great. In Texas, it's a hard sell because it's got the word pork in it. Yep. Um, you know, people like whole hog because, again, that's a visual thing. It's great for their Instagram photos. But but pork steak is a much harder sell. But it, it's just unbelievably tasty. It's, it's, it's wonderful. A great and, bite. and what I like best about it, I cook it a lot because unlike a pork shoulder, which you need 10 hours or more to cook it, you can get a pork steak, even a good thick one done in a couple hours. Um and it's absolutely delicious. So if I, if I need to start cooking at three in the afternoon, you know, because I you know, I can't be in the backyard all day long, uh, pork steaks one I go to just to throw on the pit. And it's you know it, it especially you know, the bone in one, it gets that little red smoky bits right around mm-hmm. the bone. It's so so delicious. And, and, uh, and you mentioned thick, which is critical. I mean, um, St. Louis style is generally pretty pretty yep. thin. It's got to be an inch or thicker. Yeah, there's an interesting. Um, I'm, I'm gonna get the county wrong is it uh, there's a little county in kentucky um and uh tompkins is it tompkinsville uh is the, the town and they do a pork steak there which is unlike anything i've ever had anywhere else there's only a couple places only a couple barbecue joints in the in the county but uh it's really really super thin like maybe even less than an inch maybe even a half inch uh, it's super thin, so they cook it fast, you know, less than an hour, but they put it in this real spicy, vinegary sauce, and it's absolutely, it, it, it in and of itself is absolutely delicious. And that's one of those things you'll, you will not find anywhere else other than that the couple of counties there in, in, uh, in Kentucky. Um, and I don't even know how it, it started. They actually um, they cut the, the pork shoulders when they're frozen with like a, a meat, you know, bandsaw, meat saw. Uh, to get them real thin, and then they thaw out and put them on the on the pit, which is actually sort of that that crazy dip reminds me of Cooper's. You've been to have you been to Cooper's in Texas? I they have. Got, yeah, yeah, the big vat of sauce that they they want to dip everything in at Cooper's, <laughs> even your brisket. And we're like, no, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how that tradition started. Yeah, we've we've got sort of a hybrid of that in Cadillac Barbecue in uh, Dallas area. 
uh, Todd David, the chef pitmaster there, is originally from St. Louis area, but he's also fallen in love with Texas barbecue and snows and everything. And so he does have a thick cut pork steak, but he does kind of the St. Louis kind of a mop on it. So yeah, that's one of the St. Louis style to get, get that you know hit it with the sauce at the end. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. It's, it's, so it's kind of a mixture between the two. But yeah, I mean, pork steak is something that we've we've always thought was an underrated cut and underutilized cut. But yet it's it it's had its. Uh, difficulties in texas other than the small towns that it's always been served in well it was the best thing i had it snows i mean as good as as tootsie's brisket is you know the the pork steak just blew it away um and it's so wonderful and it crites i'd say go for the pork i think it's a pork steak chop chop, yeah um and but it's it's super super uh delicious as well so you know even if you're in texas there's some good pork to be had and and speaking of those cuts, I mean, what are what are some other cuts um, that we should be or the listeners should be interested in? Uh, you know, we talked about hash, talked about pork steak. Um, I'm sure there's some other other interesting ones out there. Yeah, lamb for 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 sure. Um, lamb is actually the disappearing barbecue meat uh, in the Carolinas and Georgia. If you go look at old restaurant menus from the 1940s, 1950s, you'll find lamb on almost every, every one of them in, in the Carolinas and Georgia. It was just a standard barbecue meat alongside, uh, alongside pork um, and mutton as well. We think of mutton as being, you know, just those good counties around Owens, Owens, uh, Owensboro, Kentucky, which are where you find mutton these days. And just in a couple of counties up there in, in Kentucky. But lamb was a huge meat in uh, the barbecue world in the early part of the 20th century. And there's a lot of complicated reasons. I read a whole article about what happened to lamb um, after World War II. And lamb eating in general, just among Americans, you know, not forget barbecue, just in general, fell off a cliff. Um, but it did, almost disappeared altogether from... Um, uh, from, from the barbecue menu. Uh, there's a place in Savannah called Johnny Harris restaurant, which closed a few years ago. Um, the story of it's fantastic. It's actually opened as a, uh, as a speak, speakeasy roadside joint during prohibition, uh, yeah. just outside of Savannah and the city eventually subsumed it. And after it was legal to make, uh, <laughs> to, to sell booze again, the, the uh, owners actually turned it into this nightclub with this, built a whole fantastic building and a nightclub. I mean, they had big bands and they had like, wow. the, you know, the, so the biggest the cap Calloway and all the biggest big bands in the in the country would go through there and play. And people would dance under the, uh, they, they had that called dancing under the stars. Cause they had this big dome roof <laughs> over the dining room with starlights, little lights up in it. And it's absolutely a wonderful place. And unfortunately the, the family, uh, just couldn't keep it up. Couldn't afford to keep it up and, and closed it, um, a, a couple of years ago, but they had lamb on the menu right up to the, to the very end. It was, it was great. Um, it was, it was, it was a wonderful thing to, to eat alongside uh, pork. Robert, you've written six books now. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. sort of. But a couple of people how you count it because like, we have two editions of the barbecue history, so that's either five or six if you count it as a second book. And the latest one out is just another deep dive into the history uh, of Southern culinary. You know, let us know a little bit about the new book and, and what people. Can yeah. So expect. it's, it's called the lost Southern chefs and it's a history of commercial dining in the, the 19th century. And I say commercial dining because it includes restaurants, but it, it basically includes every way that people would cook food for, for money. So that includes catering that includes, um, uh, saloons includes hotels and banquets, uh, you know, ho- hotels really 
I write all about the how, the rise of the hotel, nineteenth century, and the hotel dining room, uh, and I write a lot about the people who who cook uh, who, who cooked in the nineteenth century. It's something that no one's really written a lot about. Um, in fact, I knew very little about restaurant dining in the South in the you know until I really dove in and started doing the research. It was something that's been ignored for a long time. People write about Southern food; they, they did rightly so. They you know the South was primarily rural. You tend to write about you know, grits and, and cornbread and, you know, things that, that are cooked in the home kitchen or, you know, in, in, in farms. Uh, not a lot of people are written about the restaurants, but like here in Charleston, there was a really thriving restaurant scene as early as the you know, 1820s, 1830s. Um, I sort of got into it from a barbecue angle, though. I was uh, tracking down these two barbecue cooks in Augusta, Georgia, who I'd come across, and African-American cooks that, that not a lot of people have, have really written much about uh, the about African-American cooks in the 19th century. Well, a lot of times we didn't even know the names. Uh, and so I found these two guys um, and sort of started tracing how they, they, one was named Gus Ferguson and the other was named Pickens Wells. And I sort of traced how they became the barbecue cooks. And they, they were the great um, sort of in-demand barbecue chefs that would get hired to cook at all these big outdoor events uh, in, in Augusta in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, one of them ended up cooking in a restaurant in Augusta, in, in downtown Augusta. Uh, and another, and uh, actually he did that for a while, and he ended up moving moving north as part of the Great Migration and leaving the South and worked in restaurants up there. So that was sort of the connection. I don't think they even appeared in The Lost Southern Chefs because uh, I ended up not being able to really cover them or they're, they're, they're in there very briefly. But that led me into researching the Augusta dining scene and really, really realizing, wow, there's a lot going on. And there's a lot of restaurants here. Uh, and then that took me, took me into all that. So barbecue led me to it, and I realized that no one had really written much about um, uh, about restaurants. But there is a linkage, certainly with barbecue. Um, long before there were barbecue restaurants, which really are a phenomenon of the early 20th century, barbecue cooks were caterers, and they were they were catering these these large outdoor events. And um, they might uh, some of the guys like um, uh, Tom Griffin in Richmond, Virginia, which is actually before the Civil War. He was the town's the city's leading caterer. He had a saloon downtown, but he also had this little property out on the river. Uh, I think east of east of, of Richmond on the James River, where all these organizations would come out, and he'd stage big outdoor feasts for them, often cooking barbecue. So he would he would cook barbecue. You know, at his little place on the river, and then he would downtown. He had a, the saloon where he also had dining rooms, and, and it was a fine dining chef. So it's a it's barbecue sort of started off uh, as sort of this catering thing. That was really the first time barbecue became a commercial product. And a lot of those guys later established restaurants, or their their sons and and grandsons established you know restaurants in the early 20th century. You talked about a restaurant, you know, hotel dining, and and there are things that harken back like there's old cocktails that were a lot of times originated from these hotel bars and mm-hmm. i believe the kentucky hot brown sandwich has roots to a to a hotel in kentucky if i remember correctly yeah that's correct the brown hotel yeah. uh in, in in kentucky uh the julep which the mint julep which we think of as like a bourbon cocktail no it's it, it is it was not a bourbon cocktail uh in the 19th century the julep actually originated and, and I, I do write about that in the, in the lost southern chefs um it originated in the um Virginia uh, Hot Springs Resort. So in the western part of Virginia, much of what is now West Virginia was all Virginia at the time. Up at the edge of the mountains were all these hot springs, and people started going out there to take the water, as they called it, which was to bathe in the water. And there's a lot of belief that if you drank these sulfuric water, it would cure you, which sounds pretty terrible. (laughs) But um, these hotels started being built around there initially as sort of like a health resort that people who were sick would go to. But then, you know, 
wealthy Southerners would want to get out of the city in the summertime. So they go to the mountains. And so it became sort of a, a luxurious place. And it was the innovation of ice that really made the julep. Uh, it, would, it wasn't until you had what, the development of an ice trade, which actually brought ice down from the, uh, from, it was harvested in northern lakes in the winter, put on ships, insulated, and brought down and kept in ice houses. And it really wasn't until they could develop well enough insulated ice houses to keep the ice through the summer that you had ice. So it was really the 1830s. Uh, they came up with what they called a hailstorm julep, usually made with brandy, often peach brandy, uh, or sometimes rum, but not not bourbon at all, not whiskey at that, at, at that point. And um, I write a lot about um, the great julep makers in Richmond, Jim Cook and John Dabney, who were uh, actually both enslaved uh, people uh, before the, the Civil War, but who were really remarkable, ended up becoming uh, bartenders and in the hotels there in Richmond. And then after the war, uh, had their own restaurants and actually John Dabney was a restaurateur straight through the 20th century. Jim Cook, unfortunately died not long after the, the civil war, but they were the great julep makers of, of, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And, and, um, so that, that's a, a Southern thing we think of it now as like Kentucky colonels and all that, that was, that came much later. That didn't come until the 20th century. And it was a lot of revisionist, you know, Kentucky romanticism going back and trying to attribute that to whiskey back before the civil war um in the 19th century your your julep would probably have brandy in it not not whiskey still sounds like a refreshing summer drink sounds fantastic <laughs> and that's the thing that when i read about them people wrote poems that were rhapsodic you know about the julep and there's there's these long odes to juleps but if you think about it if it's july and you're in the south there's no air conditioning you don't really have ice much of it you have enough to maybe chop up and shave and make a, a drink out of they often make ice cream and and things like that but if you're hot and you you would not have cold water to drink because where would you get it from there's no refrigerators or anything like that so um you'd have your know, room everything would be room temperature so everything would be in the 80 you know around 80 degrees so you can imagine going into a bar and the guy shaving ice and pouring in and these were elaborate silver goblets and they would pile them with ice like shaved ice like a big dome of ice the pictures of them are, are fantastic and then put fruit and flowers and adorn them and put these long silver straws in them some of them were so big there was like a three or four person drink but if you think oh. about it what you're doing is you're then drinking this mixture of you know booze usually brandy sugar and mint through the ice it must have been just absolutely you know the best thing you've ever Dabney sipped. would have had a hell of an Instagram following. Yeah, he would have. <laughs> and he, he literally, uh, they, they, they literally, um, their version of Instagram were these little squibs and newspapers and, uh, these little paragraphs. And he was, he's, you find all these rhapsodic, you know, John Dabney, um, all these chefs knew how to curry favor with the press. It's not unlike today, right? You know, how do you, you give a food writer free stuff and they'll Instagram it today, right? You know, all the influencers, um, they would actually send trays of, uh, turtle soup because green turtle soup was one of the great delicacies of the 19th century and a big julep to the newspaper offices, to the editors, you know, they would have their, one of their waiters deliver it to them, but you know, usually about 11 o'clock on a Friday night <laughs> as they were trying to get the paper to bed and, and they would end up with these rhapsodic paragraphs, uh, you know, celebrating John Dabney for wow. bringing him uh, the, the julep. The ode to the julep. Yeah, it's yeah. it's terrible poetry, but uh, it's very uh, very florid and very effusive about how wonderful the, the juleps are. 
Well, of course, we're, we're from Texas, so we, we love a, a good barbecue list. And uh, you've been putting one together for, for quite some time for Southern Living. So, what kind of an under... I mean, because it's bad enough having to do it in Texas, but you've got to go all over the country. Yeah, all the south doing this. I really wish we could just kick Texas out of the South just to make <laughs> my life a lot easier, just because Texas is literally a world of its own. So, But but the Southern Living, if it's 22 million people, that Southern Living wants this them to subscribe to the magazine so i understand why texas has to stay in the in in the south um but daniel does a great job you know with the texas monthly with with that list so uh so i sort of you know use him to scout out <laughs> locations but texas is included but um i haven't done it in a couple of years because uh, we ran into the pandemic and um you know unlike a lot of lists that uh I, you know I'll give Texas Monthly props. They they put in the work. You know they they aren't. Uh, there's so many lists you find where it's clear the writer has never visited yes. these, and and even like mag well known magazines, and you get these little clickbait things that clearly was written by somebody. You know, yeah, but, who right. may not be in the United States. I have States, to jump. You know? One of our one of our favorites was uh, was one that um, one of the restaurants wasn't even in the city. Yeah. it was like it was like the <laughs> ten best Houston barbecue joints, and it's in. It was in. It was like a hundred uh, miles away. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you've never been to Texas, how would you know that? Right. right? right. You know, even though we have Google Maps, which is pretty <laughs> pretty easy, you can actually look at pictures. But now those are those are terrible. But you know, Daniel and his crew, because he actually enlists a whole bunch of people to help him, they they visit everywhere. Um, I, I my list for Southern Living, it's just me. Uh, I haven't enlisted anybody, but that's that's sort of on purpose because I like to do the <laughs> I like to do the research. But everywhere on there, I've been. Uh, most everywhere I've been multiple times. Uh, not not everyone on there. Uh, I have, but th- if it's on there, I've only been there once. It really blew me away. Um, we need to do it again. I, I uh, did decide that I just haven't been able to travel enough. Obviously, with the pandemic, that that put a, a damper on things. Um, so I've got a, a you know, we'll we'll come out with it. Not probably not this year. We'll see. It depends on if I get to enough places. I did do the best new barbecue joints for Southern Living recently because I did travel around to some of the ones that opened since uh, 2020. Um, but it's, it's the top 50 in the South and, you know, it's, it's really hard to put together. I, I really, um, started that project with them. Gosh, I don't know, mid 2015 or so. I think I, I signed on as a contributing barbecue editor. And the first thing we did was a, a series of regional, uh, or state. So I would like to, you know, 10 must visit Georgia barbecue. So I would actually go tour all around Georgia, eat as many places as I could. Tough job. Yeah, it's a tough, tough job. job. Well, it's actually the whole, there's a, there is a, a technique to it. Cause, uh, I think 13 places is the most I've visited in one day, which is a little too much. You, you, that, that beats ours. Ours was 11 and we'll never do that again. No, it's, yeah. it, 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 it was not, it's much better to do five or six. You know, you can, you can have a moderate amount of each one. You have learned one bite of each side. Don't, don't fill up on the mac and cheese in the first place, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but I do try to travel around and, and, you know, as much as I can just during the year and scouting as I, as I call it. And then I have a spreadsheet and, uh, I have all the restaurants in there and, you know, I have candidates and that's where I go back and forth. I rank them, I move them up and down. And, you know, I, originally I didn't, I actually, actually the first list I did, I like Texas monthly. I didn't actually do them in ranked order. I think it was just, this is the top 50. I think I did the top 10 and then the top, top 50. But at some point I decided, well, you might as well, well, it was almost a practical reason. Cause if you do a top 50 list, and you put them in alphabetical order, everyone will say, congratulations to Yes. You. Okay. I, I have a t-shirt. <laughs> I have a t-shirt from a place that says they're the third best barbecue in Texas, and it's because they were in a city that had Starts a high letter B. Yes. <laughs> and I feel really bad for the folks because they were so proud of it. So we didn't correct them or anything, but 
but absolutely that we get so many people that are like, oh yeah, you know this. You need to go to this place. They're third on the list, and it's because the city starts with the letter B. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got to look at that because people just look at a list very quickly and don't don't get it. I think um, if you do a list of the best new barbecue joints, then the people will complain. Well, how come Dreamland's not on there? Well, because it was founded in 1947. <laughs> if you read the you know the, the one paragraph open, this is since 19 or since 2020, or whatever. Um, if you are even just like, I, I wrote one like about like off the beaten path kind of places where uh, for Southern living, which is, you know, these are the ones that haven't got a lot of attention, but you know, here's 10 places you really should visit that aren't well known. And of course, everybody assumed it's the top 10 list. It's like, where's whatever, <laughs> you know, where's, where's Franklin barbecue? So, well, Franklin's rather, rather well known. Um, so I did the top 50 though. I'm going to, uh, still scouting out. They got a lot of places to visit. An incredible number of places have opened in the last two years, yeah. and so I and, and good places overdue. and really yeah, good. The, places. The, yeah, the the level of barbecue in the new restaurants is just stunning. Yeah, and I like I, when I was doing the Southern Living, I flew into Dallas uh, and just you know rented the car and I hit a Hurtado. Um, what's the what's the one in Arlington? Just uh, Goldie's. Oh, Goldie's. Hit, yeah. Goldie's. Uh, I, I hit a couple of the Himes. Uh, I mean, just amazing restaurants, and these are all. You know, new. I mean, the Himes been around a little while, but their their newer ones are, are in the last two years. Um, and so it's like a wealth of it. And that was just in the. You know, I haven't left Dallas. Right. Yeah, and there's yeah. more of open since then that, that I need to get to. So yeah. Texas is going to be tough. I got to get back down there. I have a, a long list of, of places to visit. Like I've never been to the Truth Barbecue in in Houston. Uh, I haven't been there since it, it opened up. And there's a bunch of stuff in Houston actually that, that I've not been to. Yeah, I think seven seven joints made it uh, this time in in the Texas Monthly list just for Houston. And there's two or three easily if not more that really we're at that same level that we're probably right yeah. on the cutting edge. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, that's, it's tough to do, to, to do those lists. And, um, you know, I think Daniel, and I do, do it a little bit differently. Um, he tends to be, I think much more food focused solely. And I always say, you can't get on my list. If you have terrible barbecue, you gotta be a really good barbecue, but that's not the only criteria. I don't have a point system or anything where you get 50 points for this and that and the other. It's more just a, a impressionistic. But I think for me, atmosphere and style, the overall experience matters. Yes, it does. And yeah. so a place may, like if you had them, the same barbecue in a styrofoam box from the two places brought to a table, maybe this one on the left would objectively just side by side went out. But if you drive fine to Austin, you drive down the Pickle Parkway all the way to, <laughs> to Lockhart at 85 miles an hour. And then you, you, you walk into Kreitz and stand in that line in that pit room. And you know, that, that goes a long way, you know? And, and so I, I ultimately came down to my list of saying, you know, if I put these two side by side, what's the criteria? I said, well, if you only could visit one of these, which one would I recommend? And that one would go bump up the list. And so I did this pairing and that's how you end up with, with, with my list at least. And so it tends a little bit more toward the historic, a little bit more toward the, the places with atmosphere, though certainly there are a lot of new new restaurants on there that, that cook great barbecue. But it's sort of like, to me, barbecue is a great thing to eat. It's very flavorful and tasty and wonderful, but it's also an experience. And so that whole experience of going to a great barbecue restaurant is very important. Okay, so we'll, we're getting close to wrapping this one up, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you just a few little random questions, okay. um, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see what you come up with. So obviously you, you, you travel all over the country eating barbecue. We all know the, the famous places are known at this point. We know about Skylight. We know about mm -hmm. Louis Miller. What's, we'll give you each state. What's one place that not enough people are talking about in South Carolina? 
Well, you've been talking about McCabe's, which is is great. Um, that's one that immediately comes to my list. Uh, Heights in in West Columbia. One I always uh, point people to in Sacramento is Big T's uh, in Gadsden, which is a fantastic place. There actually are three Big T's. There's two in Columbia. Both are in sort of a strip mall. In fact, that's where I first. My wife used to work in a Enterprise rent a car <laughs> in the same strip mall as Big T's, and so I go eat, eat lunch there. They're there all the time. But they're they call it the mothership down in Gadsden is where the, all the, the, the stuff is cooked. They do old school hash as well with with the liver in it, and it's you know it's 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 a really flavorful hash, and it's just good good wood cooked barbecue. So for South Carolina, that that's one that hasn't got a lot of attention, but I think more people should go check it out. North Carolina, North Carolina. If you haven't been to, um, some people say Grady's, some people say Grady's, um, but Grady's is, uh, is what in it looks Dudley. like in Dudley, North Carolina. Yeah. If you haven't been there, get there. I am worried that they may not be around that much longer because both the Grady's are in their eighties. I don't know if they have anybody on the family to take it over. Hopefully they do. Uh, but Stephen Grady still cooks. Well, he actually cooks half hogs now because it's easier to lift. But he's in his 80s and he'll stay up all night cooking, cooking hog. It's just out in this little white cinder block building. Um, it's got some a good bit of attention, but that that's one that I think is is great. Um, there's a bunch in Lexington, North Carolina. Lexington Barbecue gets you know all the the, the attention, but there's at least 12 woodcook barbecue places in Lexington. Oh. Uh, unfortunately, Smiley's is either has or is about to close. I saw they just served their last, yeah, they, last one. Just they, recently, um, yeah. They're on a side of a road that's getting widened. So the mm. state, they, uh, they're in the domain. domain. Uh, and we knew about it for a couple of years, but they finally have, have closed. Uh, they, they finally sold the land to the state. Um, so that was a that was a great one uh, that, that didn't get a lot of attention. Um, Fuzzies in Madison, North Carolina is one that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I, I think it's worthwhile. It's To me, it's like a just a, classic Piedmont North Carolina barbecue spot is something it's in what used to be something else like a pizza hut or something like that. It sort of looks like a diner, I think, or like a, a fast food type type of restaurant, but it's just good Piedmont North Carolina. They have the weirdest hush puppies I've ever seen. They do them these long, they sort of just squeeze the batter in the deep fryer and these long squirrely <laughs> squiggly <laughs> strands and delicious. It, it's, it's nothing, you know, it, it's nothing fancy or special, you know, per se. It's just to me a classic, just good Piedmont barbecue joint. And it's up in Madison, North Carolina, so whoever gets there. <laughs> if you're in that area, go check out Fuzzies. And finally, we'll, I guess we'll end with Texas. Oh, Texas. That's kind of tough, though, because he, he needs well, to get back. Texas, yeah. all well, this Texas gets so much yeah. attention as it right. is. That it's hard to find a place that's right. off the radar in Texas. It so. is. It is. And, and my problem is, um, unlike, you know, I can drive from here you know, to Virginia or down to, to Georgia and Florida, it's sort of hard. I have to fly into Texas, rent a car, and, and drive around. So I just haven't eaten as much Texas barbecue as I would have liked. Certainly, and when I go, I have my list that I've learned about from someone else. So I don't have a lot of places I've just sort of stumbled into. Um, well, well, let's rephrase: Is there what is there anything you ate in Texas that surprised you that you didn't expect? Well, I think snows. I've talked about the pork steak already. I was not expecting expecting that. Um, what else in Texas? It's not the rewind. It's been except for that little brief trip to Dallas. It's been a while since I've, I've been out there. Um, yeah, I've always still, Lockhart's gotten the, you know, sort of. It, it, it dropped off the top 50, yeah. the Texas monthly list, and that kind of hurt us because we're, we're, we're the same way. Like, you know, you have to, 
somehow you have to account for that history and, and, and the experience. Yeah. And, and nothing gets, I like all the places in, in Austin that get all the attention, you know, from Fr- Franklin and, and Micklethwaite and, and Lower and Lewis, all those are every, and La Barbecue, all those are great, fantastic places. Um, but there's just nothing quite compares to just driving, you know, driving out to Lockhart and, and uh, eating there. So I think, um, I also, I would say go to, go to Kreitz and get the, not only the, the pork chop, get the, the shoulder clod. Um, which is, you know, an old cut of, yeah. of Texas beef. And at first it doesn't have that, you know, brisket, the fatty brisket has that big explosion when you first bite into it. But this is, I, th- I think I'd rather, if I had to eat like a half pound of brisket or a half pound of shoulder, I think I'd actually go for the shoulder because it grows on you. It's, it's more subtle, you know, it's, it's just good beefy flavor. And so th- th- that surprised me how much I like that. And I find the same thing with brisket. I, I tend to like the first bite of fatty, and then I like lean after that, you know, because it, it grows on you with each each bite. And I think Claude's even, your shoulders even. It, it grows on you and you grow with it. That's right. Both, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, well, it, it has been a, a phenomenal conversation. We could talk probably for hours, um, but we have limited time that we have to wrap this one up. Maybe we can talk again sometime. Would love to, especially if you come to use, into Texas. Yeah, I have to get back out there. So whenever we decide we're going to do the Southern Living list again, I'll be definitely making a, a another swing through there. Um, it's, it'd take me a month to eat all the places <laughs> I want to eat. So we'll see how long I can I'll be out there. But I'll definitely be back in Houston before, before too much longer. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. Again, Robert's new book is out now. The second edition also is out now of the barbecue book uh, that is... The History of an American Institution. Yep. Um, and please check out the best ways to find you, social media-wise, website. Yeah, robertfmoss.com. That's F in the middle. Robertfmoss.com uh, is the best way to find me. And then, you know, it has links to everything on there. I am uh, Moss R on Twitter and then Robert F. Moss on Instagram. Right. Sign up for that bi-weekly cue sheet as well. Yes. Stay on yep. top of it. Robertfmoss.com is where you can sign up for the cue sheet. It comes out, it's now about twice a month. It was weekly during the pandemic, but now, now I travel a little bit more. So, so to, to, uh, twice a month for the QG. All right. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank you to Charleston wine and food for having us out here in head high media. And we cannot go without thinking Vaughn, our wonderful sound that we you're hearing on. This is absolutely thanks to her. We would not uh, normally sound this good. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks everybody.